Every time I see that video, I think of a, an elderly couple that I used to work for when I was a kid. And they would sit on the porch swing when I mowed the grass or worked in the yard or dug a trench. And they would hold hands and drink lemonade and laugh and carry on. And uh, they were a beautiful example of what a godly relationship was. And I used to sit there and think, you know what? Someday, someday I want to have a relationship like that. We are in uh, week four of a series on marriage. And today, we're going to look at the vow of purity. And I want to say at the onset, as we go through this series, that some of these messages are difficult. Some of these messages proclaim a truth that is so contrary to the way that the world lives today that it's hard for many of us to hear. It's hard to preach too. But from my perspective, if we commit to the truth... If proclaiming this word saves one marriage or gets one engaged couple off on the right foot, then like it's all worth it. And however it might be uncomfortable, it's okay. I have been in ministry for 20 years now, and I have never met a man or a woman who comes in for premarital counseling that thinks, I am going to break her heart, or I am going to break his heart with infidelity, or watching things that I shouldn't see, or having an emotional affair. No one stands in front of the one they love on their wedding day and says those things. No one thinks those things, but they happen every single day. Hebrews 13.4 says this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. God, our God, is righteous, and he is holy, And sin has consequences in our lives. Now, to repeat what I said last week, there is always grace and forgiveness in Christ. There is. And in the name of Jesus Christ, if you've been dealing with guilt and shame over something in the past, I want to say today, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You need to hold on to that, and you need to move forward. But, Working God's plan for your marriage, the marriage you have today or the marriage that you're planning for the future, working God's plan will save you a ton of grief in this life and potentially in the next. Genesis 24 has kind of been the theme, or 2.24 has been the theme of this entire series, and it says this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, the two become one and there isn't room for anyone else except God. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, 
Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It is a beautiful passage of scripture. It's, a, it's read at a lot of weddings. And the third strand in that cord is God. And like we talked about uh, the first week, God is the first priority of both the husband and the wife as they come together in that union and become one flesh. Your spouse is your second. And there's not room for another person. Not even the kids or the grandkids really take that place. Certainly not another man or another woman. Those of you who are planning to get married one day, you need to guard your purity now. You can't live with one set of values and standards before you say, I do, and expect to live another set of values after your wedding day. Now, God can always change hearts. God can always do a miracle. There is always room for God to change you. And praise God, that has happened to many of us. Before we met Christ, we were one way. And after we met Jesus, he did a tremendous work. God can still bring about change, even after you say, I do. But typically, your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits set your character, and your character will determine your destiny. Things can change, but you need to have new thoughts, new habits, new actions, a new character. That, and you can have that in Christ. Sometimes, before people say, I do, they, they deceive themselves, thinking that they don't, have to obey those things of God because they're not married yet or because we're already engaged, we're committed to one another. It's really hard to have a godly marriage if you're trying to build it on a foundation of sin. One of the places that principle is seen in Scripture is Matthew's Gospel. I want to read chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus talking, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I want to point out the obvious and say the same storm hit those on the rock and those on the sand. It came for the righteous and the unrighteous. Everyone faces temptation. Everyone faces trials in their marriage, in life. It's just a given. And we have a bent inside of us, a desire to rebel against God and his best for our lives. It doesn't even make sense, but it's there. There is this real desire in us to take the easy route, to build on the sand, but those who have made their foundation, those who are committed to 
the rock of Jesus and his truth will stand that same storm that other people fall to. Those who share his thoughts, who have made a habit of obeying his word, who share the character of Jesus, they will stand for all time. Not the same for those who build on the sand. I, I, I love how John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, described Christians. He, he described Christians like this. We are able to stand, but liable to fall. We're talking about marriage and, and purity and being married for a lifetime, but, but I love that. Able to stand, able to stand committed, able to love one another for a lifetime, but liable to fall. Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. There is that real desire in us to disobey God, but the spirit is there to fight for the truth, to fight for us to stay on the rock. I wish it was different, but sometimes sin is what we want to do. Not just before we meet Jesus, but after when the Spirit is present in our lives. It, there's this battle raging in our bodies. The Spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. Thankfully, the Spirit is there so that we don't do whatever we want to do. We can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We are, as John Wesley said, able to stand. It's about our thoughts and our actions and our words and our habits, and our character. I'm convinced that the strength to be committed to those things comes only through prayer. Now, that just sounds like a Christian pastor thing to say, right? Oh, it comes through prayer. It, it does, and, and not just a prayer, like a battle of prayer, a daily fighting in prayer that's continually fought until our desires become God's desires. All of us can testify that when, when that doesn't work out, when we fall to temptation, when we do something that we know we shouldn't, we, we feel some kind of a shame, we feel worthless in some way, like we let other people or God down. If we're married and we fall to some sexual sin, we regret letting our spouse down, maybe our kids down. Sin has a way of just rippling through our lives and into other people's lives, and we feel the guilt of that. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Hopefully, it keeps us on the narrow road. Hopefully, it helps drive us to our knees so that we seek God's forgiveness, which is real, and we can be made clean again. Do you, do you realize in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned against God, they had never felt sin or shame or guilt like ever? 
Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and they felt no shame. And my Old Testament professor in seminary had a wonderful take on all that. He said that the reason Adam and Eve felt no shame was, one, they were close to the heart of God. They literally took walks with God in the cool of the evening every night. They spoke with him face to face. I would argue that that same closeness is meant for us in prayer today. And he also said, number two, that they only, Adam and Eve, only looked at each other and not themselves. And what Dr. Oswald meant by that was that Adam looked at Eve and agreed with God. She was very good, beautiful in every way, and his partner for the end of time. Eve looked at Adam and agreed with God. He was very good, handsome, and for her in every way, her partner. Dr. Oswald said that after Adam and Eve sinned, for the first time, they looked at themselves and they saw how they had failed to reflect the image of God. Sin made them unworthy and embarrassed. And for the first time, they wanted to hide from God and from each other. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They, they hid. When God came to talk to Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, as was his custom, things could have gone entirely different. He asked Adam, where are you? He says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? God asked Eve, what is this you have done? No one owns up to anything. Adam and Eve both do the same thing. They pass the blame on to someone else. Has anyone else ever wondered what would have happened if Adam and Eve would have answered those questions differently? Like, honestly, would grace and forgiveness have been on the agenda? instead of consequences and punishment. Given the character of God, it seems likely. It's true today. I think it would have been true then. He is the same yesterday and today and forever, but they lied. They hid. You're taking notes. Jot this down. Hiding my sin is the enemy of intimacy with God and with others. Hiding my sin is the enemy of intimacy with God and with others. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve never hid from one another. They were naked and felt no shame. They never accused one another of wrong. They certainly never hid from God when he came to walk with them in the evening. Adam actually blames God in a way for his sin. He says, Adam says to God, that woman that you put here, she gave me the fruit. When sin creeps into a marriage, you start to devalue the other person as a gift of God. 
What happened to Adam's phrase, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is for me. She's my partner. She is good. Sin happened. And now it's that woman that you put here with me. She gave it to me. Paul talked about this, this darkness that sin brought into our lives and our world and actually what to do about it. It's Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. For you were once darkness, like through and through, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. The good news is that through faith, you are no longer in darkness. In Christ, he has brought you from the darkness to the light, from death to life. Thank you, Jesus. But remember, there is still that battle that rages in our soul. We know it's there. We know it firsthand. And Paul gives us the solution to winning that battle in verse 11. We are to expose them. Sin and shame grow in the dark, but healing takes place in the light. Paul says in Ephesians 5.3, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. Or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Sin harms us. All sin, not just sexual sin. When we talk about sin, oftentimes what we're tempted to do is to draw a line in the proverbial sand so that we, we, we don't cross it. But the problem with drawing a line in the sand is we're tempted to get just as close to it as we possibly can. And we, and we creep up to that line and, and we try not to cross it. I love the series we did a couple years ago by Andy Stanley called Guardrails. And Andy Stanley's premise was, uh, if this is a, a, a ravine that I might fall in, the line is here. And Andy's premise was, a guardrail is put up like in the safe zone so that we stay away from the sin and we don't sneak up to it. It's better to have a guideline that keeps us far from sin. In truth, sin starts long before we get to the line, long before the danger zone. God proclaims in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, line in the sand. But Jesus said, and this is another one of those instances where Jesus just raises the bar, Matthew 5, 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying, look, the, the line isn't like way up here at do not commit adultery. The line's back here someplace. Taking a vow of purity in marriage isn't about seeing how close you can get to the line without crossing it. The goal should be to stay in the light and as far away from the darkness as possible. How do you do that? You expose sin. If there's something that has the potential 
to get in the way of our righteousness, we expose it. We get rid of it. When Solomon is giving advice to his sons about staying away from adultery, he says in the book of Proverbs, this is verse 8 of chapter 5, keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. (laughs) I love that. Solomon is saying to his sons, listen, I don't care. If you have to go a mile out of your way, don't go near that woman. Don't go near her house. Don't be in front of her door. Stay away. Some counsel here. Find yourself a godly person of the same gender to confide in. If you're a man, don't find a woman to confide in. That's a dangerous place to be. If you're a lady, don't find a a, a man to confide in. That's a dangerous place to be. But you need Christian brothers and sisters around you to confide in. Number two, don't keep secrets from your spouse. It's a dangerous place to be. Sin always grows in the dark. Number three, Put any safeguards in place that are wise, like stay away from the door. I don't care if that's like sharing your GPS location with your fiance or your spouse. Uh, Yes, you can do that. I've done it with my wife. Uh, She can see where I'm at at all times just by looking at the GPS. Um, Put any blocks on your technology, your TV, whatever you need to do, whatever is wise. Is that because you're following the sin? No, it's staying in the light. It's staying away from the door. Number four, never be alone with a person of the opposite sex or or, or gender. If it can't be avoided because of your job, let your spouse know that you're going to be with someone uh, of the opposite sex for, for lunch or riding in a vehicle. In general, do not put yourself in that situation if at all possible, because it looks questionable to those who see you. I don't ever want to have to explain to my wife why I was out to lunch with a woman. I, I don't ever want somebody to say, hey, I saw Steve riding in, in a car with some blonde chick the other day. Do you know who that was? I, like, I don't ever want that conversation to happen. Like the rest of you who are married, I married my best friend, my partner, the mother of my three kids, and I want to keep her <laughs> as my second priority, second only to to God, until death do us part. And as crazy as this sounds, if you're married, run through not doing that, your partner. What would falling to that temptation cost you. Imagine getting caught and having to tell your spouse what you did. The pain that it would cause him or her, the trust that you would break and that would stay broken until you had time and consistency to rebuild it because that's not healed in a I'm sorry takes time. Can you imagine having to tell your kids, daddy's not who he said he was. Mommy made a mistake. 
Think of what would cost your Christian witness. When I think and ponder on those things, oh man, as, as a pastor, that's like tremendous shame. I would feel like not only did I let my family down, I let all of you down. The weight of that keeps me in the light. Can, can you see looking your extended family in the eye? Would it affect your job? <laughs> it would mine, like I'd be done. Secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. Expose it. Earlier is better. If you're facing temptation, tell someone else. Sometimes all it takes is to throw light on a situation like that, and it goes away. It is better to come clean than to get caught. Proverbs 28:13 says, "Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy." You can't heal in the dark. You only heal in the light of Christ. And the word says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you aren't even married yet. But you need to find someone and say, you know what? I need help. Like, I'm in trouble with the foundation I'm building and I, I, can't, I can't keep doing this. I need to get this in the light and get healed before I say I do. Those of you who may be on the receiving end of some confession like that, that's going to hurt tremendously. And everything in you is going to want to get mad and yell and say, how dare you? And you have every right to. But if your spouse or your fiance has the courage to say, I need help. I pray that God gives you the ability to receive that confession with a measure of grace. My prayer is that as you live according to these principles, that you will be overwhelmed by his goodness and your marriage would be a testimony to the light of Jesus. It is never too late. God is a God who heals when we come into the light of his truth. I watched it happen in my own family, so I know it can happen in yours. Let me pray for you. God, we want to seek you this day. On behalf of anyone, God, that's struggling, on behalf of anyone that is wrestling with that guilt and shame and frustration. God, that they would find a, a Christian brother or a sister to, to shed some light on that, that as they expose the darkness in them, that you would draw them close and that you would fill them with light and a sense of your forgiveness and righteousness. And God, that you would put their feet on a firm foundation, and that in prayer, God, that we would continue to do battle and continue to do battle until our, our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our actions line up with your character, and that you would change our destiny. 
And we ask this in your precious and powerful son's name. Amen.